Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Hello, great people. You are listening to episode 185 of the Howie Games Part 8, featuring Australian cricketer and cult hero Scott Boland. Scotty has been one of the most requested guests by you all of recent times. It seems his story of hard work, toiling away with little recognition before a test debut that will forever live in the history of Australian cricket due to Scotty's simply inconceivable performance. It's a story that's grabbed many of us. It certainly has grabbed me. It's a make a movie out of it type of story. But Scotty, by his own admission, Scotty isn't your leading man role type of character. He's loved by his teammates, loved, but he's not even your best supporting actor type of character. Scotty is happy to do his work in the background. Humble, (laughs) humble is an understatement when you're talking about Scott. He's typically a man of few words, actions rather than words. You get the picture. So many lost and left behind And no one seemed to care Those who should seems like they're blind Pretending they're not there Can't they see they hold the key Could make things better if they try Oh my Jaja, tell me why Won't they open up their eyes But since that Boxing Day test debut, Scotty has embraced all the changes that have come his way, and there have been many. And in his own quiet way, is a fantastic guest, a wonderful guest. Not easy to talk about yourself for over an hour when you generally avoid talking about yourself. But Scotty pulled it off. Enjoy the story of Scott Bolan, a slow burn who caught fire in the most explosive fashion. So when you search and then you find Know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Welcome to the Howie Games A man that in a short period at test cricket level Has made an enormous impression on Australia and world cricket, but as you find his journey, it was a long, long path to that magnificent day at the MCG and what he's done ever since. Scotty Boland, welcome to the Howie Games. How are you, great man? Very good, thank you. So, the challenge here, I've texted several of your teammates to get background on you. (laughs) The challenge here is they've all said he is the most modest person you'll meet. And, Scotty, I'm going to be honest with you, that's not going to cut it on this podcast. Yeah. You need to talk about yourself for an hour and a half. So how are you feeling about the process, about talking about yourself when you naturally are a man that prefers to put the spotlight on others? Yeah. Oh, I did wake up during the night last night sort of wondering what I was going to talk about on here, <laughs> but sort of kept me awake for a couple of hours. But hopefully I've got some good enough content. We will be okay. <laughs> a couple of your teammates also said, quiet but very funny, give him... Three beers, gets louder and funnier. We did think about rolling a six-pack in the studio, <laughs> but it is only 10.30 in the morning and you're about to embark on the ashes. Yes. <laughs> what, what, um, we'll get into to cricket and everything, but I've got various thoughts, but I'd love to know your thoughts, mate, and, and it's great to have you here. I'd love to know your thoughts on why, and this is where you have to put the modesty aside, why you think your story has resonated so deeply with Australian cricket fans, sports fans, and world cricket fans? There's probably a few things. Like, I coming through cricket, I didn't really go the traditional pathway. I didn't play any, like, Victorian on the 18s or any Australian stuff when I was a junior. So I've sort of done it a different way. I've come through Premier Cricket, started at Frankston when I was 18, um then got my first Vic contract at 22. So I sort of did it a bit differently than a lot of guys that do it nowadays. And then, yeah, I'm probably not, like I'm not Pat Cummins who's six foot five and fit and all that stuff. I'm, yeah, probably a bit more, I haven't got the body of an AFL footballer, I'd say that. And life now, you're about to head off on the ashes when this goes to air, the ashes will be in full swing. How have you spent 
your last period since you got back from India and stepping away from the cricket bubble? It's been a nice little break. Like, as you know, India's so full on that um, coming home was, yeah, I was looking forward to coming home after a couple of months of a pretty tough tour. Um, so I came home, played two Shield games. We, yeah, unfortunately lost the Shield final and then um, I, I really wanted to have a month of just getting away from cricket, spending time with the family. Like, hadn't seen them. Obviously, hadn't seen them for two months uh, while I was away, but, yeah, trying to spend as much time with the girls as possible. Um, and then sort of had three three or four weeks of really good prep to get ready for the World Test Championship and, and the Ashes. So I think my so far my prep's been um, how I'd want it to go, which is which is really good. Um, we've, yeah, we've had amazing facilities at the junction mm. for this time of year. We've, um, the curators right up a centre wicket, so it doesn't get much better than that when you're trying to prepare for a big series. Tell me about your girls. Ages, names? Uh, so I've got Charlie, who's four, Andy, who's two. Um, and, yeah, like, they're growing up so much. Two months away seems like forever and um, sort of get a little bit of FaceTime from them at the start when I'm away. Um, but as it sort of the trip gets longer and longer, they sort of, I don't know, quick mm. high on the FaceTime and they're off doing their own thing. So how, how do you it does deal, make it hard. How do you deal with with that time away? You're obviously a loving father and husband. How do you deal with it, which has become part of your life in the last two years, I guess? Yeah, like yeah, the last two years I've had six weeks in Pakistan, five or six weeks in Sri Lanka, and then another eight weeks in India, out on the Australian summer where you're not home too much. So that's, but that, uh, it's getting close to probably a third of your two-year-old's life. Yeah. <clears throat> so how, how's that sit with you? Uh, it's hard and I say this to my wife all the time, like I hate going away for on these cricket trips. Like I really enjoy the cricket and um, – but I sort of dread going away. I sort of get a bit of a mm. feeling in my stomach in the week leading up to when I know I'm flying away that I'm like, oh, geez, I'm going to miss the girls again. So, yeah, it's it's the – so far it's a, the hardest thing about playing international cricket is just being away from family. And is it a discussion point amongst – like there's a lot of young fathers in the group. Is it a discussion point? Like do you help each other get through um, – I've just come back from the IPL for three weeks um, – and the guys that are there for the full eight weeks, the, the, the Danny Morrisons, the um, Ian Bishops, the Simon Dools, I, I watch the way they interact and how they they immediately know their mates might be having a bit of a quiet day and help each other through it. Is it yeah. like that with the team? Yeah, it is. There's so many there's so many kids in the um, in the squad now and mm. even the Vic squad, some of the younger guys have sort of grown up and getting married and having kids. So, yeah, it is something that we, we, we speak about all the time. We... We want to know how everyone's kids are going, how their families are functioning while we're away, because it is it, it is hard on our partners and and kids especially. So, but when we do have that time where we can have a partner period or the families fly over, it's I don't know, it's the best part of the summer. And, and how do you go about juggling? Like, do you play better cricket when your family's there with you, or some of us find when we're away with work, family is a godsend. Other times, it can it can interfere with preparation for work, your preparation is key. When are you at your best? I'd probably say when my family's there, I'm at my best, even though my my, my prep can take oh, take a little bit of a back seat, but at 34, I know what I need to do to be right to play on the day. So the kids obviously try and interfere, but they don't interfere too much yeah. in my preparation. It's funny, isn't it, how the kids, like mine are older than yours, 13, 11, and the period of time I just spent away in India, like FaceTime at the start, they're all over it, and mm. then... A week in, I know my young bloke's at home by himself while my daughter and wife are off in Nepal. I get him on FaceTime and, you know, I tell him I love him and I miss him and the first thing he says, oh, how's Finji going? Yeah. <laughs> just, just leaves you a little bit flat. Yeah, like in some ways FaceTime is the best thing in the world. Otherwise, it's the hardest thing in the world, I find. What about you? Yeah, I, yeah, same. find it, even with them being two and four, they they sort of fight over who gets to hold the phone, stuff like that. So like you want to see them then you, they're crying and... You see, like the two-year-old's holding the phone. You see the top of her head, and that's it. <laughs> like stuff like that. Like you, there's things you um, remember for a long time. And your wife, she's a police officer. Yeah. Yes. H- how do you go about uh, being a, a, a successful cricketer and a, a loving and attentive husband? Yeah. Because you're you're obviously your life, therefore your relationship in the last two years has changed significantly. I would imagine. Yeah, and 
yeah, being away, I think one of the keys to, oh, keys probably most relationships, but the key to our relationship is just being really open and honest and communicating well. So she's really good. She knows if I'm a bit stressed or sort of feeling under the pump with cricket, I sort of do go a bit quiet on her and quieter, quieter on her, and she I hate to see you quiet. Yeah, Scotty. Yeah, she should above. She picks it up pretty quick, and oh, hopefully I can do the same back to her. And when you're away, are you are sending flowers and chocolates, man, or are you? That's not your go. No, not really. Might have done it once when I've been away, but <laughs> right. um, yeah, we're probably more. Oh, now we got kids. Probably more sending videos yeah. to the kids yeah, in the morning to. Yeah, give them a good morning. Yeah. So tell me, tell me about you growing up as a young fella. Where do you fit in your family? Um, I think you're still in sort of Parkdale, the region you grew up in. Tell me about your early life. Yeah. So I'm the oldest of three kids. Um, got a younger brother Nick and a younger sister Sarah. Um, yeah, I've still live in Parkdale, about well less than a k from my parents' place. Fair moved too far. Yeah. Wow. Uh, my sister's just around the corner. From she's in Parkdale as well, and then my brother's just in Edithvale, so we're all pretty close together, which is really nice. It, sh- it shows you that, that that then all of a sudden you're in India on the other side of the world. It, it, you know, my, my family spread all around the country, but I guess if you're used to that tight family unit, it has even more impact when it's not there. Yeah, and I probably struggled the most when I was a bit younger, maybe at like 26, 27, when I started going to, I went to the IPL and did some tours where I was away for a, well, had a year where I was home for only like 120 days. So yep. it does make it hard to communicate. Like communicating via text, it's good, but it's yep. still not the same as being at home. So when does cricket enter your life? Like what type of kid are you? Uh, let's say I was pretty sporty. started playing cricket when I was six in the under 12. So in the under 12? Yeah, I tried to sign up to the, I think it was called Vic Cricket or I think it was pre-Milo Have a Go. Right. But the club I was at were short on under 12s and... Um, were you a big kid? Not at six. No. But, yeah, I still remember my first game we played at um, Parkdale Primary School. The oval's tiny. I think I made like 15 and bowled two or three overs and got a wicket or two. But, yeah, I was probably hooked from then. What was your first bat? Uh, first bat was a Kookaburra Ridgeback. Oh, nice. Yeah. Buddy. And then my dad... Uh, when I got to about 12, I was uh, bigger than most kids, so I was using my dad's bat, which was a bubble. Oh, that was my, so yeah. you kept with the kookaburras? Yeah, stable kookaburra. I, I, I should know this. Do you have a bat sponsor now or not? I've just gone to kookaburra. Just gone to kookaburra. Yeah, so, Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. So yeah. it's passed through. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons I'm pumped to have you on the show, and we'll, we'll go through your stats and your story. You were, you were with the greatest possible respect, as you said at the start, you were a slow burn, hmm. which is why people identify with you. Were you a dominant, like, little cricketer in under-12s, under-13s? Were you, or oh, we're playing against Scotty Bowl on this week or not? Probably not. Like, I I was more of a batter in junior cricket. Did you make 100? Um, yeah, I made one when I was in a school game at okay. about 15 or 16. Okay. Um, so you are a batsman? Yeah. And then bowled a little bit. And then sort of as I went through the juniors, it was probably more like pretty much an all-rounder. Like me and my cousin would keep as well. We'd like keep, he'd keep the first half of the game and I'd bowl 10 overs and we'd switch. <laughs> so we'd, yeah, make the most of our career games on a Saturday morning. But yeah, oh, I always enjoyed bowling, but I just found, oh, I think everyone loves batting. Yeah. And if you can't bat, you bowl. Yeah, correct. Yeah. And what, what about your backyard setup? If you obviously you said you, you had a brother, I presume you played with him. Describe the bowl and backyard cricket setup. Uh, we sort of had um, our front our driveway was pretty long, and then had sort of gates about halfway down. And we played behind the gates. So your run up was about oh, two or three meters long, okay. and then bowling went, went under cover in a, under a carport. Um, and then we had like the the dog bed at short leg. <laughs> The which the dog bed? Yeah, so that was out if you hit it on that. On the full out? On the full out. Right. And then, yeah, we always had the taped up tennis ball and those sort of things, yeah. What was the dog's name? Uh, Bo. Bo. Yeah. So you're progressing along, but I guess no one really, I think, really thinks they're going to become a professional athlete. So what was, as you're going through school, what was the great Scotty Boland plan for life? Uh, I always wanted to be a PE teacher. PE teacher? Yeah. Mr. Boland? Grade nine. Okay. Yeah. So... I have done a bit of that study, but sort of 
It's taken a back seat the last 10 years. Yeah, so I bet. I probably need to get back to that at some stage. So you played, and I, I, I don't often make stats, but I've just to illustrate your story. So you played for Parkdale Cricket Club. Yeah. And then you go to Frankston. Yeah. So when you were at Parkdale, were you playing against men? Yeah. So I started playing senior cricket at about 16. With success too. Uh, well, I wrote it down relative, there, Scotty. Yeah. Here we first two. So here we go. Left Parkdale, 31 wickets at 12.35. Yeah, that's good. That's good numbers. <laughs> I'm happy with that. That's good numbers. Yeah. So then you go to Frankston. Yeah. What's your initial thought when you get to, so for those that might not be aware listening, we're now going to a club that if you're in the seniors in the first, you're one step below representing your state. So it's a, it's a much better standard of cricket. What was it like when you rolled in there? Yeah, different. The training was different, much higher quality and intensity than I was probably used to. Um, I went there at 18, um, sort of our coach at Parkdale at the time was Cam- Cameron Atkins and yep. he was, um, he played at Frankston years ago and he sort of suggested to have a crack at it. So I thought I might as well, I'm only 18, just got my license. <laughs> um, so yeah, drive down to Frankston on a Tuesday, Thursday night, go to the Saxon Indoor Centre down there and <laughs> wheel away. Um, so I probably went down thinking I was a batter. I used to bat top order at Parkdale and we had a good bowling lineup, so I didn't bowl didn't bowl that much. So you still went down there as a batsman? Yeah. At age 18? Yeah. Okay. And then first game I played in the seconds. Yep. I can't remember runs or wickets or anything like that, but I was probably, I reckon I was batting at like seven, opening the bowling straight away. So right. as soon as I got down there, they sort of identified that my bowling was probably going to be my strongest suit. And I remember the first game, so I hadn't really had that much of a run up or anything like that. And I bowled like seven or eight no balls and we never played the free hits at Parkdale. So <laughs> oh, no. had the free hits. So yeah, coach wasn't happy. And then <laughs> that Tuesday night we're out in the oval running out my run up, getting it right. Okay. So again, coming back to the slow burn, you played six first grade games in your first two seasons with three wickets. Yeah. Second grade, you took 37 at 18.6. But, and I say this respectfully, um, and we touched on it, you had to change your physical shape to step up to the next standard of cricket. With, with it, and how's that message delivered to a kid? It's, it's a careful message you need to deliver, I guess. Yeah, I, I was probably about 20 at this stage when I had a really good season in the seconds. Uh, I reckon I sort of went in for one, maybe one day of a game in the first, but I'd have thought, like, I was putting up pretty good st- – pretty good numbers that I probably deserved a, a crack at some stage and Nick Jaws, our coach at that stage and I sort of said to him in a might have been even a pre-season or end of season function that like what do I got to do to to play in the first and he said you need to drop some weight you need to get fitter and stronger right and if you do that uh, he goes if you drop 10 kilos by round one I'll pick you really so I was like righto and he's like I'll help you I've we, he sees a sort of dietitian at Crew Victoria and he sort of had a rough guide, diet plan for me to follow and I followed it and did what he asked and then, yeah, first round one he picked me and then, yeah, I haven't played a game in second grade since. So you lost the weight, no problem? Uh, yeah, not no problem, but right. we, yeah, got it, got it done. Okay, just I just want to take you back at one stage. When, when you burst onto the scene at test level, a photo started floating around with you and Warney. Yeah. And I can still remember the king when someone showed it to him out the back of commentary. And he's like, oh, yeah, Scotty, we did this and we did that. And yeah. <laughs> taught him everything he knows. <laughs> you know, Warnie was a great one at anointing the next champion. Yeah. Um, and I remember thinking, I don't reckon Warnie's got any recollections <laughs> at all of these photos. Great photos. Tell us the story yeah. how it came to pass. Great photos. Yeah, I th- I'm pretty sure it was a, um, it was a Herald Sun competition that, not sure who sponsored it. I was a comp. Yeah, so I entered this competition um, through the Herald Sun, and I remember I was at school at St. Bede's in might have been like year nine. I got a like mum called up school and was like, "Oh, you've won a competition with Shane Warne," <laughs> and I was like, "Oh shit!" So we end up a few few weeks went by. I took a day off on a whatever day it was. Met him at the Junction Oval in St Kilda. He had his whites on. Uh, we went to the nets. Were you in awe? Yeah, being a Victorian kid. Yeah. It's like, that's Shane Warne. Yeah. And then so my family was there as well. We all came along and he was like, right, I put the pads on, I'm going to bowl to you. And it would have been an hour 
he was bowling to me in the nets, telling me to hit him here and hit him there and all that stuff. And he's showing me how he bowled all his balls. And <laughs> yeah, it was like he just just recently this year, mum found the um, like the video recording tape of it. Right. And we went went to Office Works or somewhere and got it put onto a USB so we can actually watch it. How good is that? Yeah. And so I was like, like watching it brought back memories of the day. It was like, it was stinking hot and he's in his wife's, he's dripping sweat. But he was so generous with his time. Like he went above and beyond what he had to do for the winner of this competition, some 15 year old kid from Parkdale. Wow. Um, and he said, I'm, he's like, I'm playing a shield game on the next week come down on this day at this time and I'll introduce you to like Matthew Hayden and some of the Queensland guys. So yeah, to his word, like we, me and my brother rocked up and yeah, he took us in, got to meet these guys who were playing cricket for Australia. But that, at the time I was playing a shield game at the junction. <laughs> so he was, yeah, so generous. Outstanding. So you, 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 you're flying along at Frankston, you're playing grade cricket. How are you supporting yourself? You're working? Yeah, I was working. I was working at, um, a pub in Mordialic called right. Doyle's Hotel. Okay. Um, what was your role? Just working behind the bar. Right. A few days a week. Yeah, I worked. I worked every Friday night before cricket, finish at midnight, go home, get a few hours sleep, and then up to play cricket for Franks in the next day. So if I said to you in, you know, 8, 9, 2009, 2010, 20 games, in the first then, 27 wickets at 27. So you're becoming an established bowler in um, district cricket. If I say you're in 2009 and you're working on a Friday night and I rolled in and said, mate, give it seven years, you'll be playing for Australia <laughs> in white ball cricket. Yeah. How far off are you in your mind? Is that even a consideration? No, not even, not even thinking about that. Like, not at all? <clears throat> I probably was still feeling uncomfortable about my spot in the Frankston team at that stage. So as you begin to progress at Frankston, what's happening to your bowling? So we talked about 27 weeks of 27 and then 10, 11 to see the progression. Now 33 wickets at 25 for Frankston. You get a rookie contract to Victoria at age 22. What is happening to your bowling before you get to Victoria? In those Frankston seconds, fringe player Frankston, always going to be playing at Frankston. What's happening to your bowling at that point? Uh, well, not being a, not being someone who grew up bowling, I think I was able to pick up things a bit quicker than what you would when you're 16 or 17. Okay. I had a guy called Darren Groves who's taken 500 wickets for Frankston. Um, he was our opening bowler and we, we probably bowled pretty similar, both sort of seam bowlers, don't try and swing the ball too much. And then obviously I had Nick Jewell who would stand at first slip and he was probably the biggest influence of my career at, at that stage. And he, yeah, I remember there was a day, so it would have been early on in my career in the ones that I was bowling a really good over to Neil Schlitler from Paran. Yep. And he played miss at a couple and I had one ball to go and I remember Julie ran down because he thought I was going to chase and try and get a wicket and he's just like, do not chase this bloke, just bowl another good ball and you would, like, you need to bowl, you need to be able to bowl six out of six, you want to play up higher. Yeah. And he ran back to sleep and I didn't get him out the next ball, but I think I've, I've still learnt that now that I don't try, I don't really try and chase wickets. Um, I try and build up the pressure for either me to get a wicket or for someone to get a wicket at the other end. I don't really like the scoreboard leaking too much. Which has been, uh, you know, a hallmark of your, your test career. So you get a rookie contract to Victoria. What's it like? We talked about walking into Frankston as a, as a reasonably quiet chap, as we've established. When you walk into Victoria, who are the big guns? And are you feeling comfortable? Are you feeling edgy? Are you feeling out of your depth? Not feeling comfortable, probably feeling edgy and a bit out of my depth. Like I'm walking in the change room, there's Brad Hodge and Cameron White, Dave Hussey. Um, Big name cricketers. Yeah, and then even from the bowling front, there's um, Shane Harwood was still there, uh, Peter Siddle, uh, young James Pattinson, wow. Clint Mackay, John Hastings. Like I'm walking into a team that's dominant at that time and, yeah, I'm just a young guy trying to uh, impress people in the nets. Who... I'll have a guess that it was Johnny Hastings, but who took you under their wing? Yeah, John Hastings. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, he's sort of a he's from down that way as well, isn't he? He is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, He was. Yeah, took me under his wing pretty early, and yeah, he's taught me a lot about cricket and um, even like yeah, just even off the field, just sort of try and get away from cricket as much as possible. So your first shield game, 
25 overs, two for 92 across two innings. Yeah. What's your memories of your first Shield game? So, again, illustrating it's not like you've come on here and blown them off the park. No. I remember, I think we batted first. I remember batting at the G facing Nathan Remington, who was like really good state career at the time. And I was like, geez, I'm out of my depth here. <laughs> um, and then even bowling, like WA had a pretty good side. I, th- I only got Marcus North out in both innings, caught behind. Oh, test cricketer, that's handy. Yeah, caught behind, so that gave me a bit of confidence. But yeah, only one wicket in each inning, so yeah, didn't shoot the lights out. Are you a full-time cricketer at this point when you're on a rookie contract? Yes. So what's a rookie contract worth playing for Victoria in, uh, when we talk 2011? Yeah, I reckon I was on about 40 grand. Okay. Yeah. So it's um, not like you can be throwing cash all around the place. No, nah, and as a rookie, you don't have to be at every session. Like, it's sort of designed that if you want to still work or you're still at uni or, or some young guys now are still at school, um, you don't have to be at every session, but... I was like, I'm going to give us a good crack. I'm coming every session. I'll, I can just work it outside of the cricket hours. So was hard work a big key plank to your success during it? Yeah, definitely. Like I'm not as talented as a lot of other bowls going around. Like um, like we've like grown up in the last probably 10 years bowling with James Pattinson a lot of the time and he's like swing the ball both ways, bowls 145 Ks, can bat, gun fielder, like – I'm not like as gifted as him, so I've had to work for work pretty hard on my skills to be able to get to where they are now. Back to Big Scotty shortly. Next up on the show, we are going behind the scenes of one of my favourite sporting events, the Tour de France, which, of course, you can watch on the home of cycling, SBS. And when you watch it, you will hear the voice of their commentary gun, Matt Keenan. Matt, fantastic episode. He is a self-made man with a ripping story to tell, a one-time bike rider who has become the voice of the biggest cycling event on the planet. It's Roglic in the middle of the throw. It is Pogacar who pokes his wheel over the line and gets his first win. So we worked out who's doing the chasing early. But then when it comes down to the last two kilometres, you know everyone's role. So I know who the last lead-out guy is, who the second last lead-out guy is. And you you can tell me, the team that is on the front, how many riders there are, and I would back myself 90% of the time to get it right to tell you who was in what position without looking at the screen. In the same way that when you follow the commentator on the footy, you know who's at full back and who's at full forward. Gotcha. I never thought of it like that. So it's an, it looks like an individual sport, but it's a team sport and everybody has got a specific role. And, you know, you know when it's a sprint stage that it's not going to be the guy that's key for the mountains. It's going to be anywhere near it at the front. It's only going to be the guys that are repetitively up towards the front. That's Matt Keenan next up on the show. Let's get back to Scotty. So things progress. And again, so 2000... And 11, you play your first game. 12, 13, not a regular. Five innings, you've bowled, you've taken six wickets. 13, 14, nine shield games. 19 at 38. So you're starting to get wickets, but still not lighting it up. 14, 15, eight shield games. 25 at 30, and then you're a mainstay just before you really get rolling. How are you developing as a cricketer at that stage? Uh, oh, I think I was lucky to have Matthew Wade as captain. Really? At that stage, he, like, that season where I played nine games, 19 wickets, that's not a great record for that year. But I was still young then, and he backed me in the whole way. Like, I didn't deserve to play that many games for that for the least the amount of wickets I took. But What do you reckon he saw in you? Oh, I do have, like, some attributes. I got some pace and some bounce. Um, at that stage, I bowled really well to left-handers. It probably helped that he was a left-hander. I was bowling him in the nets all the time. But, <laughs> yeah, and, and I could bowl through playing a lot at Franks and I could bowl a lot of overs in a day and my pace wouldn't really drop too much, which I've um, yeah, had to work on a lot. 15-16, you took 7 for 31 versus WA. And I read, which I didn't know, you are on standby for a test match, West Indies versus Hobart. Yep. How's that phone call take place? Uh, so flying home from Perth land, check my phone, uh, missed call from Rod Marsh. And I remember I was sitting next to Dan Christian on the plane. I was like, bloody hell, look at this. And he's like, call him back, call him back. (laughs) (laughs) 
So we, I call him back straight away. Like, as soon as we got off the plane and we're walking through the airport, I call him back and he's standing stand next to me. And he's like, uh, what? Congratulations, well bold. You're on standby for the next test. And I was like, geez. <laughs> like, that was a big, yeah, probably a big moment in my career that, yeah, I was getting close to playing for Australia. In your mind at that stage, prior to that phone call, I asked you when you're playing at Franks and how far off are you? So now we're talking 2015, 2016. Have you allowed yourself the thought that if I continue to do this job well, I could go to the next level? Yeah, but oh, looking back now, that 7 for 30 was probably an outlier at that stage of my career. Like I reckon I might have had a, a one other Fifer before that. but So that's two in two Fifers in... 30 or 40 games. Yeah. So at the time I probably thought, oh, geez, I'm going really well. Like it was that, at that stage, I still remember that day. That was the best I bowled by miles. It was the second innings at the Wacker. The wicket was really hard and fast. I reckon I bowled 11 overs on the trot and um, when we bowled him out that night. We'll hope and try and – I reckon we only bowled 30 or something overs uh-huh. that day. But, um, yeah, we ended up bowling him out that night coming home early the next day. 2015-16, you win the Sheffield Shield. With Victoria, eight games, 25 wickets at 30. Um, you're going well, 15-16, 33 at 20.93. Now, when as someone that works in cricket, when you see 33 at 20.93, like we were talking about the average earlier on being 38, 37, 35, at this stage, you're a, you know, you're a serious cricketer. I think you became, yeah, I don't know. This is probably when Kerry O'Keefe claims he jumped on board <laughs> at this stage, but now you're becoming a serious cricketer. Are, yeah. are you comfortable? Are you confident? Are you the man when you're bowling for Victoria? Are you standing at the top of the mark thinking, this is me? Uh, yeah, that's when I probably started to be confident. I think David Saker came in that year, the year after. So we won the Shield with Greg Shepard as coach, and then he moved on. David Saker came in, and he had just finished coaching with Anderson and Broad and all those guys over in England, and he didn't do that much bowling coaching work because he was so busy being the head coach, but he'd always just give me little tips or he'd tell Mick on Mick Lewis, who was my been my bowling coach for 10 years, little things that he could think I could work on. I think that took my game to the next level. Still, I'd, I, was, I was really confident in my bowling and I felt like I was in the team to, to stay. But I was also bowling with guys like Peter Siddle and James Pattinson, um, John Holland, Farward, like the the bowling attack doesn't work unless you're all working together. Mm. And yeah, I've been so lucky to have great bowls around me the whole time to either keep the pressure on at one end or for me to do the same thing for them. Yeah. And as a, it's like in sport, if we see a, you know, if we see a showman, if we see a, a Warney or a, you know, a Kevin Peterson that just strides the wicket looking like they own the ground, full of confidence. And you think this guy's going to do well? He, he yeah. he's going to succeed. With you as an understated operator, do you feel that level of confidence, or is confidence something you've had to really develop to continue to make each step? And how important is it? Yeah, like I'm not someone like James Pattinson, who's outgoing and on the field he's loud and yep. um, intimidating. But I I do have I'm I'm confident in, in my skills, but I think it's it's taken a long time. For, for me to be like that. And now I'm, yeah, extremely confident that um, I know if I do the preparation in either pre-season or I, do, I prepare the same way for every game I play now from two days out with my skills, the skill stuff I want to do and the technical stuff I want to tick off as a fast bowler that I feel like I get to the game in the morning of day one or whatever game it is and I feel like I'm going to put the ball where I want to put the ball. Oh, what, and, what type of things are those things you're doing in, in the two days prior? So it's two days out from a game, I always just have, I always have a really light bowl of like four or five overs, but it's sort of mainly the, the day before the game where I go into a net by myself. I don't want any batters in there. Hmm. I set up cones of the lengths I think are going to be the right length for this pitch we're playing on. And then I set up cones at the bowler's end of just sort to, they're just next to the stumps and um, help me, help my feet stay aligned of where I want them to be, where I want to be landing. And then I sort of jump through, jump through that a few times, sort of walk up, little jump, bowl, like I shadow bowl, hold the ball, don't let go, but I'm focusing on where I want the ball to land. And then when I'm walking back, I'm sort of going through what I want to be thinking about 
before I bowl the ball. So, uh, what do you want to be thinking about? So if I bowl, once I bowl the ball, I come back, think about, so I sort of give myself a little tick or a cross of where where the ball um, went from where I want it to go. Huh. And then I sort of slow my breathing down as I get to the top of my mark, uh, refocus on the ball I want to bowl again. And then I want to be really clear and I don't want any uh, thoughts going through my head that are going to distract me from the ball I want to bowl. And when you are at your best, when you are in the groove, in rhythm, if you're bowling a spell, a six over spell, 36 deliveries, how many ticks are you giving yourself? Now I'm saying it'd be pretty high percentage. Because like, even if balls go for four, it doesn't mean it's a bad ball. It's, right. The batters can play good shots. So, so we're talking 30 out of 36 ticks? We're talking 20? Are we talking 34? Uh, oh, I'd have spells where I'd go through all of those numbers. Okay. Um, but I think I'm getting to the stage where I'm at a, probably a higher end of, I'm reckon I'm probably getting 90, 95% ticks in my head for where I want the ball to go. So next time you're bowling in the nets this preseason, just have a think if you're a 95% man, because if you are... Well, I don't know. I've seen myself bowl, Scotty. I'm not a 95% man. <laughs> well, I had a bowl yesterday. I definitely wasn't 95%. Right. <laughs> Save it for England. Yeah. <laughs> okay. 12th of January, 2016. You play for Australia in a one-day international. Yeah. I was at the Wacker. Me and Joel Paris debuted in the same game. Playing India. Playing India, yeah. Good day, everybody. Welcome to the start of the VB series, Australia and India. Old rivalries, these... Of Rohit Sharma made 171 from 161. Sorry, Scotty. Virat yeah. Kohli made 91. Yeah. Um, you won. Oh, how do you bowl a Rohit Sharma when he's like that? I've just come back from the IPL and I just can't believe these blokes. They just go from ball one. Yeah. So but, you're standing at the top of your mark ready to bowl to Rohit Sharma yeah. and you didn't come on, you didn't open the bowling, so he's probably on a few at this stage. Yeah. What are you thinking? Uh, oh, it's intimidating. Is it? Yeah. Um, and I, rec- I do remember the game. I, I got my first eight overs. I was happy with it. I didn't get a wicket, but I reckon I had eight overs, none for 40. Okay, it's good. Yeah. So with, with these I'm numbers happy. that are coming up. Yeah, and then my last two overs went the journey. Oh, as Rowett's just gone massive over mid on here. Scotty Bolin must have missed his mark by a yard. And Rowett's picked the ball up and hit it over Davey Warner at wide lock on. Well, attempted Yorker, welcome to international cricket and the Indian talent. Do you know what your figures were? Oh, I reckon I would have went for 30 in my last two overs, so, so you, 70. You, yeah, none for 74 off 10. Yeah. Which records are there. The worst figures by a debut, debutante Australian bowler ever in one day international cricket. Now, the yeah. game has changed significantly. So with fielding restrictions, etc., it used to be... In Simon O'Donnell's day, 10 overs, you went for 40, score was 220. We're yep. playing a different game now because yep. you need to make in Australia over 300. So yep. um, it, it's partly a reflection on the way the Indians batted, but also the way the game has changed. Yep. Do you come away from that first one day international thinking, holy heck, this is not me? Or, no, no, I've, I've bowled eight overs all right here. Yeah, This is something I can do. Yeah, I, I still came out of the game feeling like I only missed five balls in – at the end, in the last two overs. Okay. But they went for six, so. <laughs> Rowett and Firat tend to do yeah, that. Like, I guess that's the step, isn't it? Yeah. And that's that's the thing I was telling myself is I'm not missing by that far in these in these deliveries, but these batters are so good and the wicket was really nice that, yeah, when you step up the, to the next grade, the batters are better. Your margin of error is even smaller. And, yeah, I don't even reckon I dominated in domestic one-day cricket that then. So going up to the next level when yeah, you're playing Rohit Sharma and Virat Kohli, MS Dhoni, the margin of error is tiny. What separates these guys? What separates superstar players rather than just really, really good international players? Uh, I think it's got to be their well, – obviously the way they're trained, they train really yeah. specifically for the game they're about to play. I've watched Smith and Marnus over the last two years and – they're probably guys who like to hit a lot of balls, and we, we've also got other guys who are very good players that just don't like to hit as many balls. They just want to feel good. But was he? Yeah, was he? And guys like Trav Head, like they've had awesome two years, but mm. everyone can train differently. But yeah, I, I, I think it's their mindset. Like they go in thinking they're going to dominate, and 
more often than not they do. And it's and you have to I think you have to you can't just go, oh, I'm just gonna dominate this game and you can do it. There's gotta be a period of time where you build up to that where you I don't know, you have a good game here like even for me I had a good game here and there. Yep. Still didn't feel overly confident. But these guys are I think the superstars are wired a bit different where they only have to do it once and they know they can they think they can do it all the time and they can. And how do you go about integrating into a new team? Like you go from Parkdale to Frankston, it's a new team. You go from Frankston to Victoria, it's a new team. You go from Victoria to Australia, it's a new team. As a not, like, as I said, I spoke to some of the guys and the love for you is quite extraordinary within the Australian cricket setup with the guys you play with. How do you go about integrating and becoming a part of the team and developing friendships when naturally you're not the most outgoing person, I think it's fair to say. Yeah. Um, and it probably helps. I'm probably not going to rub people up the wrong way at the very start because I'm, I'm pretty quiet and reserved and yep. just sort of go about my business. So you um, don't get anyone offside early by being quiet? No, I don't think so. Yeah, that's a good um, way of looking at it. Yeah. But I'd probably say the last few years sort of hung around. Marcus Harris has been there, so good mates with him for Victoria. We've roomed together yep. for Victoria. So we get along really well. And then I sort of have always sort of known the guy at the bowlers just from playing against them or playing with them years ago. So it sort of helped. I think golf's been probably the biggest thing where you get to spend time with guys who maybe you wouldn't spend time with outside of golf. So They, they all say that you're very good at golf. Yeah. Off eight? Yeah. At, but they all start the sentence with, surprisingly, he's really good at golf. Yeah. There's, a real, there's a real snobbery from the batsman yeah. that you're a bowler that's good at golf. Yeah. Oh, they probably don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, like we've got a great golf crew that we can, I don't know, you could go out you can go out in the course and play with 10 or 12 guys from our squad and, and the coaches love playing too, so it's a really good release from cricket. Tell me about the green jacket. One of your teammates sent me a photo of you wearing a green jacket. Yep, yeah. Uh, I was lucky enough to win that. Which is? Our tour to India. So Mitch Stark, sort of our commissioner and runs the... That's who sent me the photo, to be fair. Yeah. uh, So he sort of... Well, he's got one as well. Right. uh, He's won the green jacket. So is that best performed player on a day, a week, on the tour? How does it work? So it's all all different. So the one in India was we played at the same golf course two days in a row. Mitch set up the, the game. So it was... You play two rounds and you take your best score from that hole over the two rounds. Okay. Um, and then ah. add it all together for 18 holes. And at the end, I think I beat Dan Vittori or Travis Head by one stroke. But yeah, I think it was a great way to do it and yeah, keeps the golf interesting. Yeah, obviously, once you became well known within Australian cricket circles, your heritage became a point of discussion. Tell me about your family's journey to find out a little bit more about your background. Yeah, so we didn't find out pretty much anything about it until my granddad passed away. What was your granddad's name? Uh, Jack. So from mum's side of the family, we always knew he was from Colac, but, uh, and he'd always want to go back to Colac, but he was sort of taken away when he was younger and he went to war when he was... 16. Right. And I think back then, if you were Aboriginal, you couldn't go to war, so he never told anyone he was. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, so when he came back from war, mum would always say he was always different to when uh, he left. So he'd come back. And my sort of only memories of granddad was he was really, really quiet, like, and he was quite old at the time, but he would, he'd, um, wouldn't really speak too much at all. He's always sitting in the same chair at home. And yeah, so once he, when, when he passed away, my uncle wanted to do some research about our family tree and family history, and that's sort of how we found out. So what did you find out? Found out we're from the Gulijan tribe, which is in the Colac area. And yeah, it sort of made sense though, why he always wanted to go back to Colac, because that's where he was from. And yeah, mum always said that he'd try and go back, but um, his wife would n- never let him go back. So a connection to First Nations heritage, what did that mean to you when you found out about it? Um, did you just think, it's me just finding out that I've got a Irish ancestor that I can choose to research, not research, how did it hit you? Oh, I sort of didn't really know what to, to think. And then me and my brother sort of wanted to know a bit more about it. And we 
didn't really know how to go about that. So we ended up speaking to a guy called Paul Stewart from Cricket Australia just to, to learn more about Aboriginal history and to learn more about what, how we can find out about our family history and our family tree. And um, he's been a, yeah, a great help. He sort of got us in, involved in the cricket program through Cricket Australia. And I think meeting meeting a lot of guys who have sort of either found out or known for a long time um, it was a great way for us to learn more about our history. It opened up a great experience for you and your brother, Nick, when you toured the UK. When we're doing this, you're about to go to the UK again. Yep. You haven't been since that. You haven't no. played cricket there. No. So for those that aren't aware, in 1868, this was a 150-year anniversary of the pioneering all-Indigenous side, which were the first Australian sporting team in any sport to tour internationally. So they yep. go over the UK, they play 40, I think it's 47 games. I could be wrong. They, well, they, they won just about half of them. Then in 2018, you, Dan Christian, Darcy Short, your brother, you, you go as an Indigenous touring squad to celebrate what happened 150 years ago as someone that's found out about their heritage I'm sure it was a great way to find out more from all these other guys what was that experience like yeah like we were able to retrace those footsteps we played on some of the same grounds they played at 150 years prior we got to play at Trent Bridge we played at um, the Oval and we played at a couple other smaller grounds where they'd played earlier and played against the same teams they played against so it was really well planned from um, Creed Australia's behalf, but yeah, it was, I think it was probably one of the best um, cricket tours I've been on, and it was only short, it was two weeks, so we're in and out. What was so good about it? We're there with a, a bunch of guys who, oh, every every cricket team you've been on, everyone loves cricket, but they, like these guys are nuffies, like we, we right. go over there, we love cricket, we're not like... We're a pretty good side. We won five out of six games over there. But, yeah, these guys do the hard yards at Premier Cricket week in, week out. And I remember we were playing at Trent Bridge and Dan was our captain. He was going to bowl me again. But I think the game we'd already sort of won the game and we're playing on these big grounds. And uh, he sort of said, do you mind if I bowl someone else? And I, and I was like, oh, well, I can bowl. And he's like, no, no, like we get to play on these grounds all the time. Um some of, our, some of our teammates, never, they'll never get the experience to play on a big ground like Trent Bridge ever again. And I was like, yeah, that's fine. If you think that's right, then let's, let's do it. And we'll just stand there and, yeah, we had the Aboriginal flag up at on our change rooms at Trent Bridge. And, yeah, I think well, we won the game, but, yeah, you've never seen a more excited bunch of guys. It's a great story. It's, um, descriptions of the tour kept coming back to, at times, Boland was unplayable. <laughs> Generous. <laughs> <laughs> this is you, Captain Modesty. But I read this and I thought, well, I'm looking forward to the Ashes. If our man was unplayable five years ago, what's he going to serve up this time? Uh, I was, I, was re- I read a lot about it, Scotty, and I, I watched a couple of videos about it. And the video that really struck me was when Justin Langer, who was coach of the Australian team, who were in England for the Ashes, and he welcomed the two teams together in the change rooms. And uh, as everyone in Australian cricket knows, he's such an, a passionate man and he spoke beautifully and it, it, I, I thought to myself, geez, I'd love to be a fly in the corner of that room just watching these, as you said, wonderful cricketers, but district level cricketers yeah. all of a sudden rubbing shoulders with the cream of Australian cricket. Yeah. Yeah. Like we, we walked in the change rooms, it was at Lords. Wow. So we walked in the change rooms, there's the Australian cricket team, so there's... Steve Smith, David Warner, Josh Hazelwood, all these superstars. And then um, we walk in, the girls' team walk in, JL starts talking to us. Uh, Darcy Short was in the one-day squad for Australia at the time, so he wasn't touring with us, but he got up and and he's probably more quiet than me. And he got up in front of everyone and just sort of said what this tour means to us. And, um, yeah, for him to get up, he's not a public speaker at all, but... I think it showed to our team how special our the Indigenous pathway is. And I remember JL said, he's like, we've got three Australian cricket teams in the one change room. I don't, because I'm not sure this has ever happened. So, And we've got three guys who have um, sung the team, like lead the team song in. Like, it was Brad Hatt and Nathan Lyon. I might have just been two. <laughs> um, so he's like, let's sing the song. So we're like, righto. So we all sort of 
mingle out. We're all yeah, go around the room and we're in there and Brad Haddon leads a song and yeah, we all sing the song and it was yeah, pretty special. It's, it's great stories. It's given me goosebumps. So <laughs> since you've we'll get to test cricket obviously, but since you've gone to that next level, you've had some tremendous opportunities to visit parts of regional Australia, speak to indigenous folk of all levels. What what what's your message and what impressions it left on you? Because you will have seen parts of Australia that many Australians won't have seen. And I think from a cricket point of view, like I was the second male Indigenous cricketer to play for Australia. Ever. You, yep. Dizzy Gillespie, then you. Yeah. And Just, then you look at a sport like AFL yep. and every team has got... NRL. Yeah. And NRL is the same. Gun Indigenous players. So there's role models for... Um, kids, if they want to follow rugby or if they want to follow AFL, they've got role models in every team that they can follow. Where cricket's a bit different. Mm. Kids have never had an Aboriginal man or girl to look up to that's in the Australian team. Um, so I think that's why we're so underrepresented in cricket. And going out to these communities, you like all you need to take, do is like footy. You just need a, a ball. They can go play for hours. Mm. Cricket, I think all we need to do is take out more bats and balls and, yeah, and I think that's the way to get the game into the communities um, and then we can sort of help grow the game for Aboriginal kids from there. How are you received when you go out on these types of trips? Is, are kids looking at you with stars in your eye, their eyes or are they looking at you saying, who is this bloke or like what, what's Bit the reception? Bit of both. Bit of both, yeah. There's some who follow cricket but there's some where you go to communities where there's not much TV at all and they're just yeah they don't know who I am I'm just sort of rocking up and asking if they want to play cricket and they don't even know what cricket is yeah wow that is the end of Scotty Boland part A so much more to come in part B don't miss it please do not miss it